Okay. Well, anyway, I am super thankful to see all of you guys, girls out there. Um, tonight will be in Esther chapter 1, and I was trying really hard to not have a lot of notes, but I have quite a few notes, so we need to get going here. Um, you can turn there. Uh, I'm going to just give an introduction first. We completed the book of Ruth last week, and tonight we're going to be in Esther. Um, last week, Ruth ended with a wedding, and we looked at how the wedding of Ruth and Boaz is um, representative of our relationship with Christ and our future union with him. This week we begin with a divorce, um, and this represents the wrong that can come in a society that lives without God. And Esther will be our example of how to live as a godly woman in a secular world. We need that today, don't we? The theme of Ruth was redemption, and it had the underlying themes of provision and protection through providence. The theme of Esther is providence with the underlying themes of protection and redemption. Um, Let me start with a little background. If you love history, get ready, because I'm going to give you some dates here, and you can just write to your heart's content. Um, I don't particularly like history, so it took me a while to be like, okay, what was this year, and how many to there, and I like history, but I don't like the memories and dates of it, but here it all is. Esther is set in about 483 B.C., and like Ruth, it's an account of real people during a real time in a real place, and the account of Ruth, if you recall, happened during the beginning of the book of Judges, and this account of Esther happened during the beginning of the book of Ezra. Uh, The story falls about halfway between the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem of Ezra's time and the rebuilding of the city walls in Jerusalem in Nehemiah's time. So when you study the books of Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, it can be really fascinating because we have so much historical documentation outside of the Bible um, to pack up and establish uh, the time frame of these events Um, There is proof that these people actually did live and these places actually existed outside of the Bible. So I don't think the Bible proves those historical facts. I think the historical facts support what God has already said. And as far as Israel is concerned, they had been captured and taken to Babylon around 586 B.C. And then they were released back to their own home or they were allowed to go back to their home in 516 B.C. Um, If you read the book of Daniel and then the beginning of Ezra, it kind of covers all of that. So after 70 years in captivity, only a small portion decided to return home to Jerusalem. Many had lost their zeal for God. Of course, after 70 years, you're dealing with a new generation of people that have never been uh, in Jerusalem, so they decided not to go. They wanted to stay in Persia. And if you're wondering, Persia is modern-day Iran. So, I have a quote here. I have lots of quotes from very wise men because I really liked what they said and I couldn't figure out how to plagiarize it without you knowing. So, the first one is from J. Vernon McGee. And he says, Esther is a record of Israel in a self-chosen pathway. Opportunity had been given for the Jews to return under Cyrus, but only a very small remnant returned. Ezra and Nehemiah give the story of those who did return. Esther gives the story of those who did not return, but who chose instead the prosperity and luxury of Persia. 
They are out of the will of God, but they are not beyond his care. So a little bit similar to when Elimelech decided to leave Jerusalem, he was out from under the will of God. But in this case, the people had been pulled away against their wishes, but then when it was time to go back, they decided not to. So the books of Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah cover the Jews' restoration from captivity, and it's about 84 years of their history is in Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah. It's not like Joshua judges Ruth. I like that so much better. It makes a sentence, and I can remember it. Um, So that was from 516 B.C. to 400 B.C. that those books cover. The king referred to in Esther chapter 1, how do you guys say it? Because I always said Ahasuerus. Who says, does anybody else say it that way? How do you? Because I looked it up. You know me. I like to know the Hebrew actual way. And I'm going to say it one time, and then I'm not using it again because it's really hard. So the way you say that name is Ahasveroash. Ahasveroash. Yeah, Ahay. So... It's the Hebrew title for the Persian king Xerxes. I can say that. So I'm probably going to call him the king or Xerxes Xerxes throughout. Don't let that throw you off when we're reading it. Um, Xerxes was born in 519 B.C. and he ruled Persia from 486 B.C. until his assassination in 465 B.C. And just to give you some perspective as age at this time, he was about 33 years old. His official Persian title, they, it was kind of like Pharaoh. Um, Xerxes and Artaxerxes and all that was more of a term for him rather than his name. Um, his official title means king of kings in the Persian. So I thought that was very interesting. I know, I think a book mentioned that the Hebrew name, which I'm not going to try to pronounce again, means high father. So it's kind of similar to that. He was above everybody else, self-placed. Um, the theme of Esther is God's providence. We've already said that. But God is not mentioned in this book, yet his hand is everywhere. The Jews regard this as one of the most important books of the Bible. So another quote by Matthew Henry. Though the name of God be not in it, the finger of God is, directing many minute events from the bringing about of the people's deliverance. This shows how God serves his own purposes, even by the sins and follies of men, which he would not permit if he knew, he says Old English, if he knew not how to bring good out of them. So I like that thought that um, there's so much folly that goes on, especially in the first chapter, and you think, Lord, why was this even happening? Why am I reading about this? I don't want to hear about these crazy people who are doing these things. Um, but God would not permit these things if he didn't have a plan, if he didn't know how to bring good out of them. So it's interesting because when I was researching, um, I found some letters that are held in high regard by Jewish people, but they are not part of their Bible, they're not part of ours. Um, And they're actually letters that Mordecai wrote to his Jewish family while this was happening. And he begins his letters, God has done these things. So he puts God in those letters. So, you know, we don't see the word God or the name of God mentioned at all in this book, but we know that he was there working on their behalf. Mordecai obviously understood it. And I thought that was interesting because I'd never heard about that before. So there are a lot of ways we could cut up this first chapter. Um, most of the outlines I saw were a little overwhelming, seven to nine divisions. And I thought, oh, that's a lot. I don't want to do that. But then I saw one I really like, and we're going to use it tonight. Esther's in two parts. Part one, the three feasts, verses one through nine. Part two, 
Vashti is banished, verses 10 through 22. So with that said, let me pray again, and we'll get into chapter 1. Lord, I do thank you again for each heart that you've brought here tonight, including my own. Lord, I pray that as I speak, you would reveal your word to us. Thank you, Lord, that um, these things that happened so long ago can be relevant to us today. I pray, Lord, that my words would be yours, that um, you would be teaching me as well as I speak. Thank you that you love us and you have so many good things for us, even when our life feels like folly and coming apart. Lord, you're holding it together with your hand. Help us to acknowledge you and speak your name in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Esther chapter 1. I'm just going to go through a few verses at a time this time. Now, in the days of Xerxes, the Xerxes who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. You can see his reign was vast. Um, Historically, these were all the nations of the known world except for Greece. Um, It's pretty much all of it. He owned a lot of, or he oversaw a lot of people. In those days when the king sat on his royal throne in Susha, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, that would be 483 BC, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So here we see the first feast. Um, it went for about six months. He was a prideful man, this king. He had complete rule over much of the known world. He had wealth. He had servants. He had a queen. History tells us he also had concubines. Um, He had at least five children that we know of. And so he wanted to show off his riches and his glory and his splendor and his greatness. And so he did. Uh, He was also preparing at this time to invade Greece. And so to continue favor with the governors and nobles and to encourage his army, he flaunted his wealth and power, kind of so to speak, you know, no matter where I send you, I have the power to back you up with wealth, with all these things. Um, and it took him four years to get ready for this invasion. And these feasts, he probably did at the end of that four years, just before they went off to fight in Greece. And uh, if you think about it, nobles and governors and all the people that were listed of 127 nations, that's a lot of people. Um, So it's most likely that they didn't all come at once. He probably had one province, their important people come at a time and hosted the party and then sent them back and then brought a new province and did that um, for 180 days. So after the end of this, the king, verse 5, gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. I was trying to imagine what that would be like. It's neat to have a party in a garden. It's neat to have a wedding in a garden. It's just neat to sit in a garden by myself. I like gardens, so it was kind of a neat thought. Um, But there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of Porphyry, I think that's how you say that. I looked that up because I never, I didn't know what that was. I was like, it is an ocean-like creature? What is that? But it's actually marble that's kind of a reddish color. So also there was marble and mother of pearl and precious stones. So it's like a mosaic on the ground, this pavement. And I was imagining Devin 
Janice like getting hired by the king to put that in before the guests came. I could see you guys doing that. Um, I need some of that done at my house, actually. <laughs> okay. So drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. So there was a lot of extravagance and luxury being displayed here. Um, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of the palace to do as much as any man desired. So the second feast was for all of the people in the capital city of It's either Susa or Sushan, depending on which um, version you're reading. And it lasted for seven days. And here this prideful king again, showing off his wealth and his power and his majesty to his own people that live right around him. Um, In verse 8, we read that the edict or decree was there is no compulsion. Uh, Now this meant that the guests could drink as little or as much as they want. And it was common practice at this time that... um, in the secular ancient world, to oblige your guests to have as many drinks as the king dictated or you'd be kicked out of the party. So basically the king would say, we're having another round, and every guest had to drink. Or if they were like, I'm done, they'd be kicked out. So this was kind of the opposite of that. He decided, oh, I'm easy going today. You know, if you don't want to drink as much, go ahead. You don't have to. Um, but since the king allowed them to drink however they wished, sadly, it's most likely that probably many still drink beyond their limit. So, verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to the king. So this is our third feast. And it's Queen Vashti's feast. It was common at that time and that day um, in most of these nations that men and women did everything separately. Um, in fact, women were rarely seen. They were not to be seen. And it's kind of part of the complication of Xerxes' request that we're going to see in the next verses. So verse 10. On the seventh day, don't touch that, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he was drunk. He commanded Mehuman, Bizta, Harbona, Bigtha, and Ab- Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, It's a weird name. The seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king. I had mercy on you, and I did not look up how to say those because I knew that if I was saying them wrong, I would be really sad, and then I would butcher it. Anyway, so I was going to skip that, but I didn't. So there it is. I don't like mispronouncing people's names because I don't like it when it happens, you know? Okay, anyway, verse 11. To bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So on the last day of the feast, he decides to bring Vashti out and show her off. And I was actually wondering... If this feast really only lasted seven days, or was it meant to go further, but this incident happened and it kind of spoiled everything, and the king's like, we're done, everybody go home. That's kind of my thought I had right there. It only lasted seven days, and the other one had lasted 180 days, so I was kind of wondering about that. Um, But either way, uh, he heeded the compulsion to drink, and then he thought, I've shown everything I have, it's all out there. I haven't shown off my queen yet. Let's bring her out. That's probably what he was thinking. So his pride mixed with drunkenness led him to go to a place that would not only be embarrassing for Vashti, um, but it was entirely against their custom. And had the king been sober, I think he would have been ashamed to ask her to do this. So as we know, 
Vashti refused. And commentators believe that the request was that um, she was supposed to show herself in an immodest way. Uh, Chuck Smith said that she was supposed to come in without her veil. Others alluded to either scantily clothed or no clothing at all is what he was actually requesting. Um, We don't know for sure. But also, history tells us that if this is the queen they think it was, she was most likely pregnant or had just given birth because one of his sons was born in the same year. So that's that might have been part of it. She didn't want to show herself during pregnancy. Um, no matter what the reason was, the queen was right and her husband was wrong. Um, so I was thinking, what do you do when you don't want to do what your husband has asked you to do? Did you get that? I had to say it to myself twice. So what do you do when your husband's like, oh, let's go do this thing, and you're thinking, I don't want to, for whatever reason. Um, I looked up a lot about wives in submission, and really there's like a vast amount of this in the Bible for reference. And so technically that's a whole other study in itself. But since we're here, I did want to mention a couple of things. Um, In Ephesians, we read that wives have a responsibility to submit to their husbands. But our ultimate authority is God. So our obligation to God outweighs our obligation to our husband if he's asking us to sin. So we need to follow his command instead of our husband's. And so she was right in saying, no, you're asking me to sin, whatever that meant um, for her, so she couldn't do it. Um, And I was thinking about when you have godly submission, it doesn't mean you do every single thing your husband says. It doesn't mean you never have a say. You don't have a voice. Um, it just means that you trust in the Lord. And you trust that when you're at odds and you can't agree on something, this seems to be happening more with me. Is it because my husband and I are getting older? I just feel like everything lately has been like this. Um, when it comes down to that, um, trusting the Lord means that you will trust your husband's decision. And you'll do that thing, and you'll trust that he's following what the Lord has told him, and he's making decisions for the good of the family, even though it feels like he's just not choosing my way. That's what it feels like sometimes. He's not choosing my way. He's being so stubborn. Um, But at the end of the day, if his decision is not something that leads to sin, then it's probably his heart is because it's for the good of the family. He's doing it for the Lord. Now, outside of that, Christian box. If your husband is an unbeliever, um, there's really good verse verses in First Corinthians chapter seven. You could start there. If you have other questions about non-believing husbands, you can talk to um, Pastor Jim. You can talk to me, but I'm going to tell you to go read First Corinthians seven because that's not my life, and so I don't have a lot to say there. Um, I have things in my mind that I could say, but I'm not sure. Anyway, if that came up, you could come talk to me too. Okay, so back to this. Now, you know, we're talking about the king's pride. I think we can add foolishness to the pride. So now the king is prideful and he's foolish. And Proverbs 12:16 tells us, Fools show their annoyance at once, but the prudent overlook an insult. So the fact that the king got so angry when his queen refused to come further, um, to come out, shows that he was wrong. Instead of laughing it off and allowing her request to stand and move on and say, oh, you know, well, she doesn't want to come. It probably wasn't the right time. She's pregnant, whatever it is. Instead of doing that, he became enraged. And anger sometimes can reveal that 
you know, you know you're going in the wrong direction, but you're determined to hold your ground. Um, and anger and drunkenness are a terrible combination, and they can cause a ton of destruction. And as far as drunkenness goes, I could spin my wheels here for a long time too, but I'm not going to do that. Um, but the Bible doesn't command total abstinence, but it does emphasize it. And at some of the most crucial times in um, especially the pilgrimage of the Israelites to Israel, God instructed abstinence from drink. Um, the Levites were to separate themselves from wine. There are several specifically we read about in the New Testament who were not supposed to drink. One of them was John the Baptist. Um, Solomon wrote Proverbs and we equate Proverbs 31 to the Proverbs 31 woman. She's supposed to be very wise and somebody we're supposed to try to be like. But she said, or he, Solomon said in verses 4 and 5, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. And Proverbs 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And, you know, we have a few embarrassing stories in the Old Testament of Noah when he got drunk, and then Lot and his daughters, and there was stuff going on there. Um, Now, you may point out, well, Jesus drank wine. So that gets brought up a lot. All I have to say about that is we don't know if it was grape juice or fermented. Um, It can be the source of debate. Uh, but it's obvious he's not drinking now because he's seated in heaven. And he tells the disciples this in Mark 14:25. He says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And I was thinking about that today, so I decided to look up that word new in um, the Greek. And it actually means fresh, like fresh off the vine. So you could go again with the argument that maybe he was just drinking grape juice. We don't know. And I'm not going to go there because for me, you know, that's your own personal conviction. And much of our society hinges on drinking alcoholic beverages. And it's presented as if it's a requirement if you want to have fun, if you want to be fashionable in your social gathering. Um, And in many ways, social drinking has become something that everyone does and alcohol is accepted at every event in fact I no, I'm just kidding I don't have any in the kitchen um my coffee may be fermented because I haven't had a chance to drink it um but it's acceptable at every event I've been to little kid birthday parties you open the ice chest and there's like bottles of the adult drink next to the juice boxes and I'm like what's going on here Jaya I was gonna ask if you wanted me to tell this story but you're not in here so I'm gonna do it she didn't answer me. Okay, so <laughs> I'm driving through Prescott one time, and Jaya must have been about six because she met her best friend when they were in kindergarten, and her best friend had moved in just down the street from us, and so she was over there all the time. And we're driving through Prescott, and there was a big casino on one side, and it was advertising, like, um, free... I don't remember if it was free games if you bought some alcohol or the opposite way. And she was reading the sign because she had learned to read. And she's like, well, Mom, what does that mean? And I said, well, you know, they want you to, um, they want to give you lots of things to inhibit your mind so that you'll put more coins in the slot. And it's all about making money. And she's like, oh, that's horrible. And she's like, what is alcohol? And I said, well, you know, it's something that you can drink that tastes kind of funny. <laughs> you know, I'm like, this is my chance to tell her it's nasty. You don't want to ever try it. Um, um, but, uh, no, I, I just told her, you know, it's beer, and I was listing a few things, and she got super quiet. I'm like, oh, good, conversation's over, because I'm just trying to drive. And she's all, Mom, 
I've had beer before. And I was like, what? And I'm thinking, okay, so this is my chance to either, like, freak out and send her toward it because my mom's weird and so I'm going to go try it, or to not say anything and then out of naivety she finds out on her own. I'm like, Lord, what do I do? What do I say? And so I said, really, where did you have beer? Because I'm thinking my brother drinks but not around the kids, and we don't in our house. And where has she been? We were just coming from church. I don't think it was there. Um, and she goes, well, I had it at Sam's house. Sam, Samantha is her best friend. And I said, oh, did you find it and you were drinking some? She goes, no, her dad gave it to us. And I was like, oh, her dad's a sheriff's deputy. And I'm like, what is he doing? Maybe he wanted them to taste it and think, oh, this is yucky. I don't ever want this. And I said, well, was he telling you you shouldn't have it? She goes, no, he was just pouring it for us and we had it. And I was like, did you like it? And I'm thinking, please don't say you liked it. I think it smells like dirty socks myself. I imagine they were squeezing my brother's socks into those bottles of beer when I was a kid, and so I've never tried it. And she goes, it was pretty good, Mom. And I'm like, oh. She goes, it tasted really good with the ice cream. And I was like, Jaya, I'm pretty sure you had root beer. She goes, oh, yeah, that's what it was. So thankfully... Hopefully that conversation is on hold for a little longer. We'll see. Um, I took too much time with that, but it was funny. I had to share. So I don't want to spend any more time on this because I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not talking to a room full of alcoholics. Um, but I do want to say as far as casual drinking goes, just listen to what the Lord tells you personally. Don't fall to peer or family pressure. Allow his conviction to be the reason that you do or do not do something. And uh, drinking isn't necessary for a fulfilled and satisfying life, and you definitely don't need it to successfully follow the will of God. That's all I'm going to say about that. So this king had lots of power, but he was unable to control himself. Um, He was, I was thinking he was intoxicated with power, and now he was also intoxicated with strong drink. Um, And we're about to see how he's actually very easily influenced by those he's placed around him. So verse 13, when the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men said to him, I'm not going to say these names, (laughs) the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of the king delivered by the eunuchs? So the king asked these men, what is the law? What am I supposed to do about this? And remember, he's enraged with anger, with burning anger. He's probably not asking nicely. He's like, what am I supposed to do? Tell me what the law is. I have to do something. Um, But in some ways, I was thinking he had a little bit of wisdom here because he wasn't trying to act on his own and figure it out in his anger. He was asking someone for help. Um, But he does ask those around him. And we can see from their answer that... These were probably more opinions. They definitely weren't the law. It sounds like they're making it up, kind of like, oh, this is our chance to get our women to behave. 
So verse 16, Then Memucan said to the, in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against the officials and all the people who are in the provinces of the king. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, The king commanded the queen to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. So this Mimikin guy, he's adding his own thoughts in something he hopes will happen, and what he's telling the king. You see the king, the women will hear of this, they'll treat their husbands with contempt. Not only that, all the women in general will treat all the men in general with contempt and wrath, and this whole thing is going to get out of hand, and the women will rise up, and the men will lose control of the kingdom. That's essentially what he's telling the king. So this matter of Vashti's disobedience, it was actually a personal marital issue. And Mamukin was taking it, and he was turning it into a kingdom issue. He was blowing it way out of proportion. And he wanted to put a law in place. And his purpose seems to be that he wanted to take drastic action to reinforce the men's leadership roles in their homes. So this is what he suggests in verse 19. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before the king. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike." So we don't know if this was the equivalent of a divorce or merely a separation. Um, History doesn't tell us. We know that a lot of his wives just kind of stayed there. She wasn't banished completely out of the kingdom. She just wasn't able to go in the presence of the king anymore. So we don't know at what capacity that was. Um, Now it would have been nice if the king heard these words of Mimukin and recognized them for what they were. And then he would have realized how foolish he'd been. Um, he would have remembered his love for his queen. And then he would have gone against what Mimikin is saying, because he's still the king. He can do that. It's okay. Um, but history tells us that he was not only prideful, but he was unreasonable, and he listened too much to people around him. And you add all that to drunkenness and anger, and he's getting ready to go to war. It just was pretty much a volatile situation. So verse 21 This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimikin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So he got rid of Vashti. We know that he didn't immediately replace her, because after this is when he went to war with Greece. And so it was about four years into that invasion around the year 479 B.C. when he was defeated and humiliated and he came home dragging his tail between his legs and he needed solace, but there was no queen to comfort him. So that is going to be where we start chapter 2 next week. Let's see. I wanted to give you a couple more quotes here. David Guzik says, The goal presented here was admirable and speaks to the need with every man to incense respect and honor from his wife. This is the um, talking about the edict that is going out. 
Let the wife see that she respects her husband, from Ephesians 5.33. A wife's respect is the most precious gift she can give her husband. However, the means used here to gain and preserve this respect were foolish. A man cannot demand or coerce respect from his wife. If it isn't freely given, then it isn't worth anything. Oh, that went off the... Sorry. Sometimes when you bring in outside stuff back there on that, it blows it up on the screen and it disappears. So I apologize for that. Um, I do have another quote. We'll see if it's all in there or not. By Don Smith. It says, For the Christian, submission in marriage requires a response of love to God first and then your spouse. Husbands and wives were invaluable, unique, and ordered roles to fulfill. Submission is as much attitude and response as it is a set of ordinances. It is by faith that wives follow, within biblical parameters, their husbands, believing God can and does work through them, even when they are at odds in their spouse's opinion. Boy, did I need to hear that. I, feel, I told you, I feel like fear lately. It's me on one side and him on the other. And, you know, difference of opinions, difference of preferences, like things in the bathroom over here. And I come in and I'm like, well, they belong here. And I'm good, and I try not to say anything until it comes to the kitchen. It has been the kitchen lately. So pray for us. Every time I go into that kitchen, I'm like, what in the world has happened now? Get out of my kitchen. So, anyway, he's feeding the children, so that's a good thing, right? So real quick, just a summary. I want to show you where God's hand kind of was in this. Um, first thing is that God established this kingdom of Xerxes. He thinks he did this all himself. He thinks that he was in control. He thinks that he was mighty and wealthy. But God did it. And we know that from a lot of places in the Bible. But I picked Romans 13.1. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Um, The second thing was that God used the king, king's demands on Vashti for his good purposes. Um, Proverbs 21.1 tells us the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So the king looked like he was doing this horrible thing against Vashti in his own strength and anger and because he was drunk. But the Lord already kind of knew. I think in those crossroads, he gives us a choice. Are you going to have a cross with the queen and send her out? Privately and not in a drunken rage, or are you going to go this way? Okay, you're going to go this way. Well, we're still going to, you know, use this for my purpose. So we see God's hand there. God uses the foolish wisdom of men for his good purposes. So in that, the king was asking for advice from around him. God used that. Um, Memukin gave foolish advice. But his statement in verse 19 is providential of Esther. If you look at verse 19, it says, Let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. That is the Lord. He's going to work this out. And next week we get to see that take place in chapter 2. And I'm going to pray so you can go to your groups. Lord, again, thank you for your word and um, how relevant it is to us today. I pray, Lord, as your subjects that we would remember that you are our king and um, you have control of our situations. Um, Lord, help us to allow you to reign in our lives, to uh, listen to you when you're speaking to us, to ask for your advice when we're trying to make a decision, um, to be humble before you and submit to you. Uh, Lord, thank you that 
there's so much grace and mercy and sometimes it's hard to listen to our husbands it's hard to listen to you we don't want to listen to the government like ever but lord thank you that you're in control and i ask that we would um have a lifeline to you that's never cut off and we would be able to hear from you lord be in our groups i ask that our conversation would honor you tonight that we would be able to bring glory to your name and encourage one another Thank you for each of these ladies, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.